name of Charles Stevens Law, Pennsylvania, Wednesday afternoon, November 17, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, taking up the second chapter of Blackhawk's book, Archaeology and the New Testament, dealing with the subject Archaeology and the Nativity. The account from the Bible of the birth of Jesus. All right. How many Gospels are there, Mr. Harris, in the New Testament? Four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How many of these tell the birth of Jesus? Four. Two. Which two are they? Matthew and Luke. Mark starts with Jesus already grown up, and so does John. And neither of these tell the birth or infancy of Jesus. Incidentally, when critics say that the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ is only mentioned in two of the Gospels, and therefore we don't have to believe it. Uh, there are only two that tell the birth of Jesus anyhow. So this isn't surprising at all. Also, it is, you can make a quite a plausible case that it is implied in the Gospel of John. If any of you don't know what that is, I'll tell you later something. But, all right, two, Matthew and Luke. And Matthew was <coughs> it's the one that is tied in by far the most closely with the Old Testament, presumably written originally for um, Jewish readers and Jewish Christian readers. And Luke was a Gentile, apparently, and trained in Greek science and is a very careful historian. And it is with Luke that we are largely concerned, but of course not in trial. Now, um, Gaius Vibius, this is question 25, Gaius Vibius, chief prefect of Egypt. This man is a Roman, of course. This is a Roman official in Egypt during the Roman period, dated here at A.D. 104. This would be a little over a century after the birth of Jesus. But it is of interest to us in this connection because it concerns the ground rules for taking a census. You notice page 25, because of the approaching census that is necessary for all those residing for any cause away from their own district to prepare to return at once to their own government, that is their own local government, in order that they may complete the family administration of the enrollment and that civil lands may retain those belonging to them, knowing that your city had needed provisions, high desire, and so forth. Wouldn't you think it would be much simpler for the officials to go to where the people were than require all the people to move to where the officials were? Suppose we take a census in America. People had to, living in California, had to go back to New York State to get their name down on the census and back and forth like this. Do you think we Americans would stand for this? Well, we put up with a good bit, don't we? <laughs> I don't think we would, though. I think there'd be a good bit of public outcry against this kind of bureaucracy. But in Roman times, the officials did more or less what they pleased, and the ordinary folks had to adjust to it. So this tremendous expense and inconvenience, apparently every time there was a, a major census, people had to do this. It made it simpler for the officials. They could report it more simply and conveniently and the common folks didn't matter whether they were inconvenienced or not. Now, that's a document from Gaius Vibius, and ends in three, four little dots. 
and Baikar uh, tells us after this that uh, it becomes too fragmentary to decipher. This is, you see, a papyrus that's like a Kleenex or drawing paper. It's fragile off the edge, and that's it. But um, this was the kind of a notice, he says, that Joseph, the carpenter in Nazareth, found posted, and he says, read with a sinking heart. Now, uh, let's see, uh, he, he states here that um, it was probably necessary or in harmony with the law for Mary to accompany Joseph on this long and difficult trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. How far would that be? Well, I think that would be about 60 or 75 miles. Something like that. It was quite a trip. He wouldn't do it all one day. And um, quite a very long trip. Palestine, 150 from Dan to Beersheba. I guess this would be about half of that, maybe. Maybe not quite. Maybe 60 miles. And it was an arduous trip, anyhow. And um, so Jesus was let's say, of the royal line of David, he could only be king of the Jews if he were registered or reckoned as a legal son, not a natural son, of course, but legal son, uh, as a member of the same tribe. There's nothing more complicated in New Testament studies. Maybe Dr. Tweed has introduced some of this, but uh, the um, two genealogies of Jesus, one in Matthew and one in Luke, and uh, the... the uh, differences between them. No, no difficult problem with this. And one theory about this is that one of these is the genealogy of Joseph and the other is the genealogy of Mary. And that Jesus was descended from David on both sides of the house. So of course, Joseph was not his real father. We recognize that. But Mary was certainly his real mother. And that she too was of the lineage and family of David. Now, I believe that. Anyhow, they had to go to Bethlehem and um, it was a difficult trip and would, would cost money and, and discomfort and so forth. And finally they get there. Now, where did um, they stay when they got to Bethlehem? Mr. Uh, in the inn. All right. Uh, what part of the inn? Stable. That's the best part of the inn? <laughs> now, I read that Mr. May. It says very likely, yes. Uh, this isn't proven, though. The Bible doesn't say that. It says it says uh, manger, doesn't it? Because there was no one found in the end. That this was a cave is surmised, I think. Does it say that anywhere in the Bible if this was a cave? Yeah, I guess in the book. Well, he suggested, but I don't think he can take the cave. This is certainly true. Now, I read a statement that uh, says they were, they were put up in this um, sort of an annex because there was no room for them in the end. And the comment was there's always room in the end for the right people that have got the right kind of money. Is this true? You suppose if uh, President Nixon would come to Beaver Falls that the uh, Holiday Inn would tell him, sorry, we're all full up. <laughs> or, uh, Tom East Motel. Sorry, we're all full up. 
you can always find them in the end for the right people. I can tell you, if the Roman general or governor had come to Bethlehem, they'd have found room for him in the end. If they had to put somebody else out, they'd have found room. And the fact that Mary and Joseph had to take uh, what was, well, anyhow, second-best accommodations indicates the relative poverty. This is indicated, this is part of the whole um, humiliation and suffering of Jesus from the glory and riches of heaven to the uh, the level of poor people in this world. And when Jesus was 40 days old, they um, brought him to the temple with an offering, and the law said, a lamb, or if the family were very poor, a turtle dove or two young pigeons. And this is the alternative offering that Mary and Joseph brought, indicating that they were too poor to provide the lamb, which every Jewish family would want to do if they could, you know. This is an occasion in the family. But they brought the, the, the less expensive offering, which the law allowed, so that nobody could be so poor that what they couldn't comply in some way with this law, dedicating him to the Lord. Now here they uh, he's put in a stable uh, or an inn, uh, back of an annex of some kind, back of this inn. And uh, does Blakelock hold that this was really a... Oh, a very uh, poor and dirty place that Jesus is born in. Mr. Brown? No, I was surprised. He said that it was just there. He didn't have a bath at home, and so he gave a sign of that. He said that he didn't think that Tom Mary was himself. No. Well, I think this is probably true. It's too bad to bust a common idea about a thing like this, but this is probably true. Now, my father, when he was about 18, came from the Netherlands or Holland. His his father, my grandfather, had been a minister there for many years. And for a while, he lived in a parsonage in, in Holland, in a country town. And usually, the Dutch treat their pastors pretty well, considering. And then the livestock lived in part of the same house. They got a little wall, and here's the place for a couple of cows and some chickens and a pig, maybe, under the same roof, but just through a little door from the family. They were poor. The whole country was poor. And nobody thought of this as either a disgrace or a hardship. That's just the way, that's the lifestyle. That's the way people live. Unless you were wealthy or lived in one of the larger cities. And so probably this accommodation that um, Mary and Joseph were assigned and in which Jesus was born was par for the course. And certainly it isn't the best. And it isn't what you'd expect for the birth of a king. Surely not, but probably not too much different from what they were used to in that in Nazareth and wherever else they had been. So uh, Blakelock says the host gave his next best accommodation without thought of slighting his guests. It would probably be, let's probably see that, a rock-cut cavern with a raised platform where visitors could sleep inside of their tethered beasts and stacked luggage. Sort of an ancient Palestinian motel. So the advantage of a motel is you can you don't have to pay any tips to a bellhop that brings you a drink of water or something. And in addition to this, you're within easy reach of your luggage. You can lock your car and it's parked right out there eight feet from your door and you can get at it when you need it and also you can uh, keep a little watch on it in case anybody you know, attempt to steal it or rob you of anything. So this would be something like that, and uh, he says they wouldn't regard themselves as ill-treated. Now, uh, going on from there, 
the census, page 28, and there are many examples from Egyptian papyri. You should realize that the papyrus uh, documents and fragments recovered from Egypt are in the thousands, not just a few. Nearly all of these are non-literary, like net uh, receipts and uh, receipts from bills paid and uh, things of that kind. Non-literary, just ordinary discarded records, what we would call trash paper. I read about a clerk in the Pentagon who thought some records were out of date and no use anymore and passed the memo around his office for eight officers to sign, could these be destroyed? And everybody initialed it and agreed to destroy them except the last one, and he put down, yes, provided they first make a Xerox photocopy of every page. <laughs> that's, the, that's the bureaucratic mentality. Well, uh, a lot of these surprise documents are non-literary with their letters, correspondence, orders, receipts, memos, this kind of thing. And this is an example of this here. Uh, registration of somebody, this is Tony um, Sparion, um, daughter of Phyllis with her guardian Apollonius and so forth, and it shows their registration in the census. This is one. And it ends with an oath, you see. If I am sweating, truly may it be well with me, it's softly the opposite. And the second one, from a century later, it speaks of a woman who, like Mary, if tradition is correct, must have been a mere girl when her son was born. Now let's read this one, 29. And this is question 27. Um, to Julius Saturninus, officer of the Heracleopolite Nome, this is an Egyptian unit, from Patasukas, son of Pithiotis, of the village of Ensirona. I make my return in the ninth year of Antoninus Caesar, the Lord, in accordance with the order of Valerius Proclus, the prefect, myself, Petasukas, age 42, my wife, Tarsiris, daughter of Periatus, Periatus, age 34, Nephoros, my son, age 17. I swear by the fortune of the emperor that I have presented the aforesaid return honestly and truthfully and have told no lie, nor omitted anyone who ought to have been returned by me, nor taken an advantage of the identity of name. Otherwise, may I endure the consequences of the oath. They would say, I state under penalties of perjury. Now, um, uh, she was 34 years old at the time of this census, and her son was 17. He subtracts 17 from 34, and she must have been 17 when he was born. This is a little younger than his common day. I don't know, maybe not, though. And um, this would be comparable, then, to the age of Mary, perhaps. How old was Mary, Virgin Mary, when Jesus was born? Well, Mr. Guy, do you know? Huh? No, we don't know really, do we? This isn't about Mary, this 17 year This is somebody else. Well, this is only a guess. You can um, make your own estimate. There's no, no figure on this. Um, probably in her late teens, though, because it was, well, marriage was almost universal among the Jews, and they married younger than we do. A girl would almost certainly be married before she was 20, and her husband maybe 20, 21, 22, something like that. 
And therefore, the fact that Mary was not married yet, but only betrothed, would seem to indicate she was probably still a teenager, perhaps in her upper teens. Now, um, um, the um, documents that Joseph would have to file for this census, according to Blake, what would they be then? Yeah, a sworn statement listing the members of the family, comparable to this one, top page 29, uh, or the other one on the other page. And then uh, this child was born while they were there, so this would require an additional um, affidavit or statement uh, registering the birth of this child. This sounds very modern, doesn't it? You know, I read about a social worker called on a poor family and was trying to find a way to help them and said, what's the baby's name? The baby's mother said, See Molly. Well, isn't that a pretty name for a girl? How do you spell it? F-E-M-A-L-E. Just like the doctor wrote it on the card. <laughs> well, uh, that's the way, the way things are done today. Now, uh, Two more examples here of birth certificates on page 29, and um, then we come over to page 30, the um, enrollment, a historian's note, question 28. Uh, this famous and well-loved Christmas carol by Phillips Brooks. Anybody know who he was and what denomination of Christian he was? Well, Phelps Brooks, about the middle of the 1800s, was an Episcopalian, pastor of a church in Boston, Massachusetts, and a, a, a devoted and uh, spiritual Christian who loved the Lord, and wrote that, in my opinion, very beautiful Christmas carol, A Little Town of Bethlehem. I'm a little bit mad at Blakelock for sort of spoiling it for us. <laughs> At the end here. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Now, it's got a beautiful tune with it, too. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And uh, let me tell you, that was written by a man who believed the Bible and who believed in the much-opposed doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ also. Phillips looks as a believer. And he was not a modern nitpicker at the Bible, a believer in it. All right, now, according to this, what does Blakelock say about that beautiful Christmas child, Mr. Harris? Time. Also, there must have been a crowd of people because the inn was full. 
His crew just said they were at least a full-up crowd of people in Bethlehem. The end, if the end had been empty, that would have been different. And uh, therefore, he sort of puts two and two together here and figures that um, there was a lot of going on from people coming and arriving from different places. Now, I'm not too sure he convinces me absolutely of this. Um, presumably, people traveling to Bethlehem for this census would travel in the daytime and would get there before very late in the evening, and presumably they'd be so tired that they'd sleep during that night, we hope, without benefit of Salmonex or Nightcall, and get a good night's sleep. And therefore, Bethlehem is not a large place. This is six miles south of Jerusalem, and um, it's, a, it's a city of a few thousand today, but in Bible times must have been much smaller than that. And neither in the Old Testament than the New was Bethlehem ever more than a, a fair-sized town. David's birthplace, of course, as well as Jesus. But um, I hazard the opinion that things quieted down by about 9.30 or 10 p.m. and that still, you could say, above thy deep and dreamless sleep for silent stars go by. Maybe. That's helpful anyway. And um, it may have been crowded. And certainly there would be a lot of bustle going on in the daytime there, getting the census attended to and getting away again. Everybody coming in, you know, they've got donkeys or other um, animals to be looked after in the courtyard of the inn. Do donkeys ever, uh, let's say, disturb the quiet, peaceful silence of the night? Do they, Mr. Harris? They break. E R, you know, and they'll do it at the first crack of dawn, about three, four o'clock in the morning. Wake everybody up. The Chinese have found out how to stop this. You tie a brick to the donkey's tail, and then he cannot or will not break. <laughs> if you're ever bothered with a breaking donkey, just remember this little formula. He tied Dick to his tail and he will be silent, whether because for some reason he can't make it or whether he is so indignant at a world in which people will tie dicks to donkey's tails that he refuses to break. And that's the part of the asinine precedent. But this, all right, well, let's say Bethlehem may have been a little quieter than Blake Rock and perhaps Craw here. Now, uh, um, William M. Ramsey, William Mitchell Ramsey, do any of you know anything about this man? Maybe I should introduce you to William M. Ramsey. Well, was he an American? Was he an Englishman? Well, not quite. Uh, you call him British, but uh, he was Scotch. And uh, let me tell you, the Scotch was sensitive on this little point. You know, like Edinburgh, England, on the address of the letter. Edinburgh, Scotland. And he was Scotch, a young man of, uh, oh, about uh, the 1800s, a young man of great promise and ability, went through graduate school and got his honors and degrees, with great things and achievement, and was essentially an unbeliever. He swallowed the liberal biblical criticism whole, especially what was fashionable in his time, the criticism of the New Testament that holds that uh, large parts of the New Testament are not historically trustworthy. 
and especially that which holds that uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts contain elements that are not historically authentic. And Ramsey believed this, but he was a top-flight scholar and he had a more open mind than many liberals have, and decided he would do some investigating and find out for himself. So he became an archaeologist and visited the places. I think Ramsey went to every place mentioned in the Book of Acts as having been visited by the Apostle Paul. Someone said, you know, uh, other people saw the palaces and the ends of the Mediterranean world, and Paul got to see the inside of the jail. But this is true, of course, Ramsey didn't get in jail, but he, he followed the footsteps of St. Paul and visited these places, not just reading about them in books, but going there and staying there and poking around to see what he could find. And some rather um, difficult places like Iconium and Derby and Lystra, mentioned in the Book of Acts, these are in Turkey today, and the Turks weren't always too friendly to archaeologists, but he visited all these places. And Ramsey was convinced by the weight of the evidence that the New Testament documents were historically true. He fought this, but he was honest enough to admit when the evidence had refuted his previous belief. So he came to be a believer in it. Now, he was, uh, this was very welcome, of course, in conservative and evangelical circles, and Ramsey became known as a great friend of the truth. Now, let me further guard you a little bit against making too much of this man. Ramsey was not what we would call a fundamentalist, although he came to believe that the New Testament documents were historically trustworthy and came around from a skeptical viewpoint to one of faith. Still, he did not believe in the verbal inspiration or the infallibility of the Bible. And I have read places in Ramsey's writings where he didn't hesitate to hold that something in the New Testament records was not correct, some little detail. So this we should remember. And some evangelicals and, and biblical scholars have made so much of this man that you would think he was fit to teach on the faculty of Bob Jones College. But this is not correct. He should not have got there at all. Not here to me either. However, what he did has been of great service to us. Now, I, I don't question this man's eternal salvation or anything like that, of course, but uh, he did not hold a viewpoint fully in line with what, let's say, Orthodox churches believe about the Bible. On the other hand, what he did in his researches has been of great service to us in uh, showing the factual evidence for the truth of the the New Testament, and the standard work on the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and we'll come to that before we get through this, of course, I hope, the letters to the seven churches by William M. Ramsey, this book immediately put all previous studies on Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in the shade. They became outdated. He went to these places and studied the history and the archaeology of Philadelphia, Ephesus, Pergamon, Thyatira, and Laodicea, and so on, and found that um, each of these letters in the second and third chapter of Revelation has many allusions and references to the history of the city. And he threw a great deal of light on what these letters mean in this way. 
The land of Philadelphia speaks of him that overcometh, so I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out. And Ramsey showed how Philadelphia was in an earthquake zone and repeatedly struck by earthquakes, and when they start to feel the earth rumbling, everybody get up and go out, get out in the open fields where some building topples on you. But the one thing that would often be left after an earthquake is the strange fact that crew is these Greek pillars. They were, they were so perfectly balanced that often when other buildings collapsed, the pillars would remain. So many of these are found various parts of the ancient world, uh, Greek or Roman pillars, still standing. Look, he said, not overcome us while I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. Obviously an allusion to the, the history and geography and archaeology of that city, and so on with the others. So, um, uh, Bart Tyler was it. It's about Isaiah in, in the Lord to let us And one of these places made an appointment for a sore eye. That is alluded to there. Uh, Ramsey also uh, greatly verified the birth narratives of Jesus as well as the stories in the, or history in the book of Acts. Now then, um, uh, question 29, what is the judgment of William M. Ramsey as to the birth narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke? Um, how do you prove something to be true? How do you prove a story from history to be true? What kind of proof do you get from this? Um, Thomas Huxley, the old rascal, grandfather, I believe, of the present Julian Huxley, a fast uh, of the first order, um, pardon me, Thomas Huxley said, you have to admit that miracles are theoretically possible, but every one, every particular alleged miracle has to be proved by scientific evidence. And suggested that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, you would have to pump the stomachs of all those people out before and after to prove that they had enough to eat. Now, how silly can you get? You see, a miracle is a historical event, not a scientific fact. It's an event in history claims to be. And you prove any historical event by historical testimony. This comes down to the testimony of witnesses. And that resolves itself into the question of the credibility of the witnesses, their character and their competence. If their IQ is below 50, they probably aren't fit to be a witness. And on the other hand, if the fellow is just out of jail after serving 15 years for perjury, they haven't got the character to be a witness. But barring this, if the person is of normal intelligence and of uh, reputation for honesty and character, you believe what he says. And the more unusual the event, the more testimony is needed, but you believe a historical event, including a miracle, on the basis of historical evidence and testimony. So uh, let's say the birth of Jesus. This, of course, if you are a believer in the inspiration of the Bible, you have the inspired record, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you believe this. But looking at this as if it were simply a historical record, uh, whose testimony does this go back to? Well, Luke wrote it. He claimed to have canvassed the, the testimony of the eyewitnesses. You look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He checked and rechecked and interviewed the eyewitnesses. He must certainly have talked to Mary, and if Joseph was still living, probably also to him. 
and others. And on the basis of this man's testimony, you see, you believe it. Now, what did Ramsey say about it as to the birth of Jesus? Can you believe this along with the supernatural features that are, that are listed, such as the angels, the shepherds um, that saw the angels, the wise men, the magi, and the star of Bethlehem, and so forth? Can, you, can this be believed? Well, Mr. Thompson, how about that, that's what Ramsey said. Yeah. Now this, of course, Ray would say, I'm a Christian and I take the word of God as true. It rings a bell inside him. Abraham Kuyper of Holland said, They who have been inwardly taught by the Spirit feel an entire acquiescence in the Scripture. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead somebody to question and deny things in his word. If you are born again of the Holy Spirit, you have a bias toward believing Scripture. If you are a stranger to salvation, if anybody is, they have a bias against believing it. Now, Ramsey, uh, very possibly as a Christian, believed more than he was willing to affirm here as a historian. He says this, in fact. He says you have to take this on faith. Um, it can't be demonstrated. Now, it can be demonstrated in the only way any historical event can be demonstrated, by the testimony of witnesses. You can't demonstrate it like you can the chemical formula of water is H2O. This is obviously impossible and, and shouldn't be expected. There will always remain a large step to be taken in faith. But it is highly important to show that the circumstances with which Luke connects this marvelous event are true and that in things which can be tested, he does not fall below the standard of accuracy demanded of ordinary historians. Now, that's quite a statement as far as it goes. Who is the modern scholar who uh, pioneered the present-day trend toward what is called demythologizing the Bible? Rudolph Bookman. Yeah, Rudolph Bookman, the German professor. Did I tell you in this class what the Oxford and Cambridge students did about him? Well, this was, Bookman is, is uh, bypassed today. I mean, his own students have gone on beyond him and sort of left him high and dry. But he was the one who said the New Testament especially, the whole Bible, but he was a New Testament scholar and is, must be uh, sort of... Uh, cleaned out of its supernatural elements so that the modern mind can accept it. All this stuff about angels, miracles, and devils, demons, and everything else like that, this is part of the mythological worldview of the people of that day. And to make this acceptable to the modern mind, you've got to eliminate all these, take a pair of scissors to it, clean them out. It didn't seem to occur to Bookman that maybe what would be more appropriate would be to do something to the modern mind. But um, he was going to demythologize the New Testament in order to make it. He said man had come of age and had to have a Bible that he could believe without having to believe all these um, sort of fairy tales. So at the height of his popularity, before his star began to sink, the students at Oxford and Cambridge universities in England, some of them made fun of him, and they made a Christmas carol about Bookman which they sang around the quadrangles of those two famous universities to the tune of the well-known Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And here's how it went. 
First the herald angels sing. I wish I could sing it for you. First the herald angels sing. Book one is the latest thing. Or they would if he had not demythologized the lot. The bookman had demythologized the angels so they couldn't sing anything. But if he hadn't have demythologized them, they would have sung, Bookman is the latest thing. Well, I'm not too sure that's a serious answer to Bookman's demythologizing, but uh, maybe it'll do all right for a start. I think maybe, maybe it's fair enough to poke a little fun at some of these destructive views and let people see that... Um, we're still going to believe in Christianity and uh, don't take all of this too seriously. All right, now, uh, uh, Ramsey gives Luke credit for this. The line you hear today in our country is that you can't um, take the New Testament picture of Jesus at face value because it is colored by the faith of the early church. I heard the former head of our history department, uh, the Lord was merciful to us and he isn't here anymore, Dr. Akers. Say, you remember him? Well, he said he could believe in the virgin birth of Christ as a Christian but not as a historian because all the witnesses were Christians and therefore their testimony is biased and cannot be accepted as historical evidence. So he could believe this as a Christian and not as a historian. He also said to me out on campus one day in front of where the dining hall is now, you are wasting your life. Said it was a good bit of heat too. You are wasting your life fighting the battles of yesterday in the world of today. To which I uh, responded, I intend to waste the rest of it the same way. And later on he came around and apologized for saying it was so much heat. But he didn't apologize for what he had said. Now look. The witnesses were Christians, of course. Who wrote the Gospels? They were Christians that wrote it. And there's no such thing as being neutral about these things. It isn't a question of um, finding some neutral witnesses that are neither Christian nor anti-Christian. They're just uh, neutral in between. There are no people like that. You are either for God or you're against it. You're either biased in favor of divine truth or you're uh, naturally by your sinfulness biased against it. And the question is wrongly framed. Why not raise this question? Was the faith of the early church determined and made what it was by the historical Jesus? Instead of saying the picture of the historical Jesus was colored by the faith of the early church, which is cause and which is effect here? It's at least equally arguable that Jesus was real and said and did the things that are recorded of him and that the faith of the early church was, was uh, framed and became what it was because of contact with and of the impulse of the historical Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. This is equally arguable. So when anybody tells you this, that you can't believe it straight like it is because all the witnesses were Christians and um, the faith of the early church was colored by uh, the, the, the Christian belief was colored, the New Testament documents are colored by the faith of the early church, telling that setting the cart ahead of the horses is not a necessary conclusion at all. Now, uh, that was uh, question 29. We've got one more here in three minutes. Question three. 
What problem concerning the date of the birth of Jesus Christ was solved by the archaeological researches of William M. Ramsey? When was Jesus born, Mr. Dennison? You've had 501201. Alright. This always makes people wonder. You think Jesus ought to have been born at the year zero. This is 1971. Mr. Mary? Well, I'll tell you, this is pretty well proved. Now, I won't say 5 BC. 5 to 7 BC, or 4 to 7. There's a possible fluctuation in there. But not at zero. And it was several hundred years before this error was discovered. They didn't count things A, B, and B, C at that time. They went by who was the Roman emperor and so forth. And when the error was discovered, it was too late to go back and change all the books in the world that mentioned this. So instead of this, they figured, well, Jesus was born in uh, uh, 5 to 7 B.C. And uh, this is probably correct. Now, this raised many questions. Is this man Quirinius, or in uh, Latin, Cyrenius, Governor Syria mentioned as uh, in office at the time of the birth of Jesus. And critics claimed that this couldn't be because it was known this man was in office at a different time and it didn't drive, it didn't match. And Ramsey discovered and proved that uh, by, by uh, real archaeological research that this man, Quirinius or Cyrenius, was in office twice. And one of these times did coincide, and so this was... Uh, approximately cleared up. This is one of the discoveries. This man had one term of office the years 10 to 7 B.C. And then later on, years afterwards, he was in office another time. All right, anybody got any questions before the bell rings? We'll stop at this point, and let's see. We got a perfect attendance today. Not quite. Okay. All right, there's one, one out. This is... Yes, Is your name on there? No, yeah, that's right. I got a fellow in Bible 101. I'll tell you this. See, see how you solve this? Big class of 60 students, 35 students, his signature on the sheet that I passed around. And the quiz that I passed around that day is left blank, with his name typewritten on, but the quiz blank. Was he present and didn't take the quiz? Or was he absent and got a friend to write his name? Furthermore, it isn't in his usual handwriting. And I put an note in his mailbox to please come and see me about his score on that quiz. And he's been a class since and never came to see me about it. Now you figure that one out. Do I mark him absent and don't count the slight quiz against him? Or do I mark him present and he give him a zero on the quiz? <laughs> Well, 